For her to be murdered, taken away from us by someone so full of hate, is impossible to understand and even harder to live with. But we're more than hurt. We're angry. We're mad as hell because this should have never happened. These are cries of yet another American mourning a loved one who became a victim of gun violence. Gonville Williams Jr.'s mother was shot dead in Buffalo, New York, and a teenage gunman opened fire at a supermarket, killing 10 people, almost all of them black. Mass shootings in America have become so common that there is almost an element of desensitization towards them. It's no longer a rarity, but a tragic regular occurrence. You're listening to Beyond the Headlines. I'm your host, Sohail Akram, and this week we're looking at whether the U.S. can tackle gun violence. On 14th May 2022, a white gunman in body armor killed 10 black shoppers and workers at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York. Ten days after, on the 24th of May, a gunman slaughtered 19 students and their two teachers in their classrooms at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas. Then on 1st June 2022, a gunman killed two doctors and two others at an Oklahoma medical building in Tulsa. These are just some of the chilling examples of how gun violence has traumatized Americans. But this is only the tip of the iceberg. According to the Gun Violence Archive, the US has suffered at least 246 mass shootings in 2022. Many Americans are calling for action on gun control, but why is it so difficult to bring in reform? My day wore green high-top converse with a heart she had hand-drawn on the right toe because they represented her love of nature. Green converse with a heart on the right toe. These are the same green converse on her feet that turned out to be the only clear evidence that could identify her after the shooting. This is actor Matthew McConaughey, who was born in Uvalde. He delivered an emotional speech at White House on 7th June, telling the stories of those who died in the elementary school shooting in Texas. The actor is among millions of Americans urging more action on gun control. Dr. Eric Flieger is a pediatric emergency medicine physician at Boston Children's Hospital. He's also a health services researcher who focuses on firearm injuries. Probably the number one reason why gun fatalities are such a huge problem in the United States is the number of guns that are available. Uh, We do not have precise numbers about how many guns are available in the United States, but conservative estimates would say, at a minimum, there are 400 million guns. That's about 1.2 guns for every man, woman, and child in our country. Uh, and, and quite honestly, the data is probably much worse than that. I wouldn't be surprised if it was well north of uh, 500 million guns that are in our country. It turns out, when there are a lot of guns, guns will be fired and guns will be used. And so when you look at the fatality rates that we experience, they're quite proportional to the number of guns. As a matter of fact, when you look across other countries, certainly we are not the only country in the, in the world or in the industrialized world that has a lot of guns. There are other countries. And you see that in those other countries, they also have problems with homicides and suicides, but they have proportionally much, much lower rates because proportionally they have much fewer guns. A 2018 study by Small Arms Survey showed that there are more than 393 million civilian-owned firearms in the United States. This number has only since grown. In February 2022, the Annals of Internal Medicine said that 7.5 million U.S. adults became first new gun owners 
between January 2019 and April 2021. Dr. Flieger explains how gun culture had changed in the United States. A dialogue has happened really going back over the last 20 or 30 years that has kind of reinforced this notion that the only way to really protect yourself, if you want to protect yourself, protect your family, is that you need to have a gun. Uh, this is a dialogue that has been very successfully uh, pushed forward by the National Rifle Association, the NRA, and other organizations. Uh, many politicians have bought into the concept of this framework. And so, so people have really changed why they own guns. So if you went back even to like 1999, not that long ago, uh, the majority of people who own guns said they own them for hunting or for sport. So part of the question is, why are there so many guns in the United States? And there are a few reasons for that. One is obviously anybody knows it's enshrined in our constitution. The Second Amendment talks about guns right there. So up front, the, the right to bear arms. Now in the context of, the, of our constitution, it's around uh, a militia and protecting the United States, but that is, that's historical. And today people just look at it as the right as an individual to bear arms. What Dr. Flieger is talking about here is perhaps the most crucial element of U.S. gun control, the U.S. Constitution's Second Amendment. It is brought up time and again in defense of the right for individuals to own and keep weapons. Many people around the world may be familiar with the words from the Second Amendment. The right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. But what many people also don't know is the first part of the Second Amendment, which reads, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state. The argument that this statement as a whole is directed towards individuals rather than the collective people is debated to this day, as are the intentions behind the words and how valid any application it can be to the modern age. In 2008, the US Supreme Court ruled that the Second Amendment protected an individual's right to own a handgun unconnected to services in the militia. For many Americans, owning a gun is a right they refuse to give up. Chris Poliquin is an assistant professor at UCLA Anderson School of Management. He's also a co-author of a research paper called The Impact of Mass Shootings on Gun Policy. He says those who are pro-gun are a lot more involved in the outcomes of policies. There's sort of this enthusiasm gap between people who support gun rights and people who support gun control. People who support greater access to firearms who support gun rights, they often have a personal stake in the way these policy issues get resolved because they're gun owners, right? So these policies are actually going to affect them on a day-to-day -day basis. And so they're pretty informed about what these policies will do. And they're likely to vote, you know, based on, on these, these policy proposals. Whereas people who support gun control, you know, they might be less attentive to gun policy just kind of on an everyday basis, right, even if they do pay much more attention following mass shootings. And that kind of difference in, in the personal stakes that people have in the way these policy debates get resolved uh, and the enthusiasm for people to kind of engage in activism on a day-to-day -day basis uh, affects policymaking at the state level. Chris explains that every time there's a mass shooting, people turn to Congress for answers. But he says... Most gun policy happens at the state level, with Democrat-run and Republican-run states taking radically different approaches to gun laws. The public kind of tends to turn their attention towards Congress following these events and think about, well, is policy going to change at a national level? But most gun policy is kind of happens at the state level, and guns are mainly regulated at the state level. And we find that when you look at what laws actually get enacted following mass shootings, there's a sizable increase in laws that loosen restrictions on firearms in Republican-controlled states. 
And when we look at Democrat-controlled states, what we find is that there's no statistically significant increase in laws related to firearms that get enacted after mass shootings. Now, that doesn't mean Democrats never tighten restrictions on firearms. It just means that they don't do more of it after mass shootings happen. The reason, at least that we think that that occurs, is that it's really indicative of underlying philosophies about gun violence and what would prevent gun violence. And we really saw this echoed, uh, for example, by the Texas Attorney General, Ken Paxton, after the shooting in Uvalde. Right? The same day, you know, he came out suggesting that, well, the way to stop these kind of events is to have more people carrying firearms. For example, all of the states that have enacted stand-your-ground laws that allow people to kind of engage in, uh, shoot people basically in self-defense, those are conservative states. States that have loosened up their uh, permit policies for carrying concealed weapons. Um, several states now don't require a permit to carry a concealed weapon. Those are conservative states. And then on the flip side, right, the states that ban assault weapons, for example, are states with democratically controlled governors and houses and legislatures. And so there's this big, big divide between Democrats and Republicans. And some of that is, is sort of indicative of these underlying philosophies that these politicians have. I think some of it is indicative of constituent preferences in these different places. All the mass shootings and murders are what garner maximum attention in regards to gun control. Suicides are actually the main cause of gun deaths in the United States. But the momentum, as Chris says, only tends to build after mass shootings. Within mass shootings, school shootings understandably cause a huge reaction and conversations about preventing them reaches a fever pitch. But the divide between Republican and Democrat rhetoric is clear. After the Uvalde Elementary School shooting in May 2022, Texas Governor Greg Abbott wrote, we must do everything in our power to prevent the same tragic ending from happening again. His suggestion? to provide active school training to all Texas school districts before the next school year. Similar schemes have been seen across the U.S., where children and teachers are taught what to do if a gunman enters the school. In contrast, President Biden addressed the public differently after the Uvalde tragedy. So tonight, I ask the nation to pray for them, give the parents and siblings the strength in the darkness they feel right now. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? But despite what President Biden said, or Barack Obama before him, this heightened rhetoric from Democrats hasn't actually translated into tougher gun control policies. And one is forced to ask, if the powerful President of America cannot stand up to the gun lobby, then who else can? The gun lobby is a shorthand for the National Rifle Association and has been lobbying in the United States since 1872. A popular slogan among its members is, I'll give you my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. Dr. Flieger says the NRA's contribution to the gun debate hasn't just been to promote gun ownership, but to also halt research funding that looks at data into gun deaths. The DK Amendment from 1996 halted almost all research into gun violence. The relationship between having a firearm in the house and people dying and, and the research that was done back in the 80s uh, very unequivocally showed that uh, actually having a gun in your house was absolutely a higher risk for people dying 
who live in that home. And shortly thereafter, the NRA, along with uh, and pushing the members of Congress who supported them, got them to eliminate research funding uh, for firearms. And that funding dried up for almost 25 years. Not only did they eliminate funding for firearm research at the time, they were able to eliminate the ability to even look for grants. They eliminated many of the, uh, the areas where we could actually look at the data about firearms because you can't do research if you don't have data. The funding is important, but the data is paramount. You need to have that. And so it's had an enormous effect. We're starting to see that slowly change. Uh, they first started to fund firearm research back in 2019 and uh, $25 million a year for the last three years. The NRA is the largest gun owners organization in the United States. It also fuels millions of dollars into America's election cycle. Consider this. According to the Center for Responsive Politics, in 2017, the NRA spent at least $4.1 million on lobbying, more than the $3.1 million it spent in all of 2016. In 2016 presidential election, NRA poured $14.4 million into supporting 44 candidates who won and $34.4 million opposing 19 candidates who lost. On 27 May 2022, only days after the horrific Uvalde massacre, the NRA held a major convention in Houston. Inside the hall, thousands of gun enthusiasts descended on the meeting, but outside, several dozen people gathered to protest. Among the protesters were Houston residents Ripkin Davis and Matthew Rary. I decided to show up here today because it is an epidemic for 18-year-olds to be able to go and grab a firearm. When you grab an AR, you are here to kill people. You are not here to defend yourself. You are not there to hunt animals. You're here to hunt people. I'm here to bring maybe just an ounce of shame to these individuals at this conference uh, that is happening just a few days after we saw 21 individuals brutally murdered in an elementary school. A recent Associated Press survey showed that the Republican resistance to gun control doesn't reflect the views of a majority of Americans. The survey showed that most U.S. adults think mass shootings would occur less often if guns were harder to get and believe that schools and other public places have become less safe than they were two decades ago. How hard is it to get hold of a gun in the United States? Dr. Pleger says it changes from state to state. There are states in our country where at the age of 18, you can walk into any gun store, do an instant background check, and it is truly instant. It takes milliseconds. Uh, and if there's no reason you can't buy it, you can walk out of there with multiple guns, ammunition, etc. And then you can actually, in many of the states in the country, carry those guns on you with no license, no training, no, no concealed weapon. I mean, this is just an incredible thing. Whereas there are other states where the process of purchasing a gun requires universal background checks, where the process of being able to uh, own specific type of guns, needing to get specific permissions, and certainly carrying those guns out in public is a whole process into itself. So the U.S. continues to be a country in which the growing problem of gun deaths is a hotly contested political battlefield. As decades-long bickering between Democrats and Republicans over how to tackle gun violence continues, so do school shootings. On 14 February 2018, a 19-year-old male shot and killed 17 people at the Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Parkland, Florida. The event shook America. Manuel Oliver is the father of one of the victims. His 17-year-old son, Joaquin Oliver, was murdered. Manuel has since started a non-profit advocacy group 
Change the Ref, that calls for action on gun control. My son, Joaquin, was a, a beautiful soul, like uh, my best friend. And uh, we used to hang out together a lot. And uh, he loved his mother, Patricia. And, um, and I miss him every single day, every single minute. While I'm speaking to you, I'm missing Joaquin. And, and Joaquin also was a very, um, he was a very uh, good critic of our system. He hated injustice. He spoke about uh, gun violence several times and uh, um, inclusion and uh, climate change. So he was part of that generation that is really concerned about things that really matter. Um, so, and, and, and he was able to leave all that uh, for us to see it through his social media or even stories that he wrote. So it's not hard to uh, do what we do, uh, knowing that this is what Joaquin will be doing. We have, we have instructions from Joaquin of exactly what it needs to be done. So um, Patricia and myself, we are an extension of it. We saw how uh, for decades, many other survivors have been trying to do uh, different actions to make our politicians open their eyes and do something. Um, I mean in rallies and knocking doors and hearings and, and talking to politicians and try to convince them of something that is so basic uh, but apparently their personal interest is higher than any explanation or any uh, um, obvious understanding of the injustice behind people dying of nonviolence. So we decided to go in a different route. We decided to uh, be more creative. We use a lot of advertising industry support. So we, we create these campaigns really impactful campaigns, very disruptive, out of the comfort zone. We also tried art in, in all its uh, ways. We have a theater play, we have been painting murals around the nation. And we also call on the international um, community. We, we believe that there's so many um, failures uh, of levels in a country and we went all the way to the highest. We talking that we had a private meeting with President Biden. And so when, when, when nothing works, you have to go to another entity beyond that one, higher than that one. And, and I believe that the next one is the international community. Although many in the international community are concerned about gun crime in the United States, the answer most likely must come from within the country. But with such stark disagreements, what can be done? Chris Poliquin says there are options to find a way forward, but there is broad agreement. There are sort of some policies you can ask people about that get broad support from both Democrats and Republicans. So, for example, about 80% of people support expanding background checks. That's true of both Republicans and Democrats. Another policy that gets widespread support is preventing people with mental health issues from accessing firearms. That gets kind of above 80% support from both Democrats and Republicans. Where you kind of start to see much bigger divides, right, between kind of what is a segment of the population that kind of doesn't want to see action uh, is when you start getting into policies like assault weapon bans, um, waiting periods, 
you know, basically increasing kind of the, the hoops that people might have to jump through to, to get guns. Chris also thinks some policies that are pushed heavily by some politicians and the media may not be as effective as people would hope. The assault weapons ban has been, you know, somewhat studied and kind of really mixed results. Probably was not very effective um, at reducing gun violence. And yet you see a lot of Democrats talking about it as though that's a good policy to, to pursue. And frankly, I find that a little bit puzzling because there, there's kind of research showing that other policies like child access prevention laws, expanding background checks, requiring uh, kind of more stringent permitting requirements would be far more effective than an assault weapon ban. So we need kind of more of that research and so that we can kind of put more data in front of legislators and the public. As horrific as mass shootings and other forms of gun violence are, events of Uvalde unfortunately won't be the last one, unless there's a radical policy and cultural shift in America in how an average American views a gun and who should own a weapon. The debate is most likely going to go on for some time, but hopefully American politicians can find a common ground whereby parents don't have to worry when they send their children off to school. You have been listening to Beyond the Headlines, and I've been your host, Sohail Akram. This episode was produced by Katrina Holzapel, Aisha Khan, and Arthur Edison. If you like this episode and would like to hear more, please make sure to subscribe to Beyond the Headlines on your favorite podcasting app.